Thank you for our worship team, and that was that was beautiful and a great reminder. Um, so, let me tell you what we're going to do. We are going to wrap up after life today, and we're going to talk about some things that you may or may not care about, to be honest. Um, but some of you do because you've uh, called me and texted me and emailed me and said, "What about this?" and I love those conversations. In fact, there are very few things that are as encouraging to a pastor than to get those kinds of text calls and emails because it means you, you're interested and care about this stuff. And not that you don't care if you don't text me, but, um, but it just, it's just a reminder that, um, wow, I really love to have these conversations. So um, anyways, we are going to talk about predestination and election today. And don't leave. We're going to lock the door so you can't leave till I'm done. But I want to I, I want to wrap this up today. I was going to do a couple of weeks left in Afterlife, and I felt like, no, we need to wrap it up. Because next week what I want to do is I want to do the state of the church. <laughs> and the state of the church is good. No, I mean, that's how it normally goes in state of the church or state of the union addresses. But um, I want to talk about the state of the church next week. Before we start into Thanksgiving and before we start into our Christmas series, because the state of the church is a big part of what's going on right now. Not that it's the cause of it, and not that the other things aren't important, but for the body of Christ and for the kingdom of God, what's happening right now in the church is important. Not just our church. I want to talk a little bit about our church next week, but I want to talk about the the church, Big C, um, around the world, what's going on right now, and kind of where I see us going, dealing with the pandemic, with, you know, uh, so we've got a lot more people on Facebook today than we have had the last few weeks, fewer people in the room today, which is, I think, a direct result of what's going on with the virus numbers, maybe not, maybe the rain, or maybe they knew they Maybe it was predestined. I would talk about predestination today, and they so they knew they weren't coming. And um, but there's a lot going on in the church supernaturally that I'm both very excited about and at times saddened by. So I want to talk about that next week, and I want to do that before Christmas because before Jesus was born, the hope of the nation of Israel rested in the coming of a Messiah. It was an excitement. There was it was electric. It was the Messiah is coming to set things right. And while not everyone had the same picture of what right looks like, uh, they, it was met with great anticipation. And I want that to be our Christmas for us, that we are anticipating something in a, a season where we don't know what to anticipate, like what's coming next. We don't know. Um, so I want to I do that next week to talk about the church, and then I want to launch into... Christmas with a little bit different mindset than we have perhaps in Christmas's past. Um, so that's where we're headed in the short term. Um, and then um, I may talk next week about what I'm thinking next year, but it, a lot of that has to do with community and we're still uncertain when that can fully be fleshed out. So um, we'll talk about that as it comes. And I want you to also know in a sermon like this, uh, it, the, the purpose of preaching um, becomes more evident. 
And so the purpose of preaching is not for you to open up a funnel into your head and I dump a bunch of stuff in or whoever you're listening to dumps a bunch of stuff in and you close it up and now it's there and you have it. That's, that's really not the point of preaching. The point of preaching is to cause curiosity. Because when you leave here, if you leave here and go, oh, that was good. Or, oh, that was bad. Or, ah, I'm never coming back here again. I didn't like that sermon then you've kind of missed the point of preaching. The point of preaching is to, to cause our imaginations and our curiosities to run wild for God and to then go and seek him out. I do think today is going to accomplish that goal. I hope it does. Um, and for some of you, you could care less. But, but what I want to talk to you today about today is an, has becoming increasingly relevant to churches and has become increasingly discussed in churches you should be aware of it it does not mean you should fully understand it or you should devote your life to it but i want you to be aware and there's enough in our church that are curious about it that you've reached out to me that i thought well let's go ahead and dive in let me also say that if you are deep into reformation theology um, you are going to be disappointed <laughs> if you think i'm going to cover it all today point of preaching is to create curiosity not to give you everything and there's no way to do that in the time that i have with you today um, and then i want to wrap up with the fact that regardless of different theological stances on how a person comes to christ whether they can even come to christ um, really at the end of the day becomes immaterial in the way jesus has told us to engage the world so that matters okay so where have we been? We've talked about hell. We've talked about heaven. We've talked about eternal life. Um, and we've talked about the goal of eternal life and the purpose of heaven is that we will fully experience commune with God. We will know him fully. He, we will be fully known, which he already fully knows us, but we will fully know him. And Jesus said, eternal life is this, that they would know the Father. And so that is what we are seeking when we seek heaven. We talked last week about these, these kind of different worlds, the, the kingdom of heaven and the earth, and the fact that there was a, a time when uh, the heavens inter, intercepted the earth through the Garden of Eden. Because of sin, we were kicked out. El, the, the earth is now completely separate from the kingdom of heaven. Um, and then we have seen where God was not content with not dwelling with us, and so we have uh, the tabernacle in which God dwelt with us. Tabernacle literally means dwelling. Um, and then into the temple and then into the body of Christ through the Holy Spirit. We are now the temple of God um, because the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And then we hope in a heaven in which we will fully experience and dwell with God forever. So the point of heaven is not to escape earth it is not to escape hell and it is not to escape hardship trouble suffering or even death the point of heaven is to know god fully and be with him forever which is why some people will get to heaven and jesus says he's going to look them in the eye and say depart from me because i never knew you well he did know them and what he meant was you never actually knew me because you're not here for me <laughs> you're here for something else and so that can send shivers down our spine to then ask ourselves, well, what am I really looking for when it comes to my faith and for heaven and, and those things? If, if our idea of heaven can fully exist as a wonderful, beautiful place in our minds and it's optional whether Jesus is there, then that is not a correct 
view of what heaven is because heaven is going to be we are in the presence of God we are in the presence of Jesus eternally he is our great treasure so we saw some incredible tiebacks um, in Luke 23 I'm not going to read this that first passage Jake but in Luke 23 when Jesus is on the cross and the thief looks at him and says you don't deserve this I deserve to be here because of my sin you don't deserve this you truly you are the son of God and he says you will be with me today in paradise which gives me great hope because the thief is still a thief and yet he is going to be with jesus in paradise our intentions matter our heart matters our hopes matter our desires matter at times even more so than our actions and so i'm thankful for that so the question for predestination election i want to couch in this question so who gets to experience heaven And I'm going to do this carefully because this is a very personal question for a lot of people, especially if you have a loved one that you're not sure if they're a believer. So who gets to experience heaven? Um, One of the things I want to enter into this conversation with is, is the same expectation that God had for the priests when they entered into the Holy of Holies, and that was that we would enter into this with pure hearts and pure minds, and that we, came, we come to him openly, honestly, and with purity. That was the whole point of much of the courtyard and the holy, the holy place in the tabernacle and the temple was to purify ourselves, or the high priest would, before he could go into the Holy of Holies where God's presence actually was. So there's an important role of purity in all of this. I'm going to tie that back in at the end, but I do want to approach that. As we begin, so who gets to experience heaven? The most, our most basic understandings that we have from Scripture. I'm going to give you quite a bit of Scripture. You can follow along on version if you want. On version, all those texts will be there that you can go back and read later. Um, you can do your own um, study on this, and you can also reach out to me, and I'll be glad to engage you in this conversation. Um, our most basic understanding of who go, who gets to experience heaven uh, is John 3.16, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. Whoever believes in Him would not perish but have eternal life. That is our life verse. That is what we often want to come back to. Uh, as a pastor, I often just are like, God, can we just do John 3.16 and forget the rest? Can we just focus on John 3.16, live that out, and that would be wonderful, and let's ignore everything else in the world. But He doesn't give us that opportunity. He doesn't give us... That freedom. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, if that's all the Bible said, we wouldn't be having this conversation today. However, over the last 400 years, a conversation has been brewing within the church and and, and the, the question that has been raised and attempted to be answered is this. Does everyone, uh, so I've got an extra word in here, but does everyone have equal opportunity to choose God? Does everyone have equal opportunity to choose God? Because there are some significant strains of thought and many churches that teach that not every person has the same opportunity to God that everyone else has. Now, this has some implications to it. It has some opportunities to it, but it is something that we need to really dive into because you can find significant parts of Scripture, even from the words of Jesus himself, that seem to support two things. One, 
that not everyone can have the same opportunity to see God, or two, absolutely everyone has the same opportunity to see God. So as we dive into this, I'm going to give you kind of the broad stroke. And if you really want to dive in, I'm, it's, it, it can honestly be a lifelong process to dive in and, and determine what you believe for yourself. Does everyone have equal opportunity to choose God? Now, this question wasn't raised in the way that I'm raising it to you until the 16th century. So this was not really something that was hotly debated before the Reformation. And part of our understanding of this mentality has to come in understanding what it was birthed in. And so the Reformation, if you remember when we talked about that, the Reformation is a time when the church was like out of control. <laughs> it, was, it was significantly out of control. If you wanted to go to heaven, all you had to do was write a check to the church. And while that's a, that makes good fiscal sense, it makes no spiritual sense whatsoever. We called them indulgences, and you could make a donation to the church, and they would forgive your sin. You didn't have to repent. You could go do it again, just make your next payment. It was really crazy some of the things that they were doing. The persecution of the church, of anyone that questioned not the gospel, not Jesus, but questioned the leaders of the church, was significant and severe, often winding up dead if you questioned the church leaders. It was sickness within the church. It was deeply sick. And then to can remain in control of the, all religious services and religious thought, they began to say that in order for you to be one of us, you have to be able to pray in such a way that when you administer communion, that bread and juice or wine is not bread and juice or wine. That is actually the body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus. It actually has to go through this, this transformation into the actual blood and body of Jesus. And if you couldn't do that, you couldn't be a church leader. Now, Martin Luther had lots of issues with lots of these overstepping of the church and stepping completely away from the gospel that, that we know of him and him nailing his 95 theses on the, the church door in Wittenberg. But the move towards Ref, the Reformation actually took a lot longer than that. It had been happening for, for decades, for centuries at times. And so part of the thought of who gets to go to heaven and this discussion and the way that it's discussed today was birthed out of that environment. The environment of the Reformation coming through and saying, we need to change all this and we need to fix all this. Now, the two central figures in which that we that, that really speak to these issues, the first is John Calvin. John Calvin was born in France, but he was a theologian in Switzerland and spent most of his life and died in Switzerland. John Calvin lived from 1509 to 1564 and is known to be the father of a number of denominations, but the one you're probably most familiar with would be Presbyterianism. Now, there are others that contributed to Presbyterianism as well. But your Presbyterian friends, if they are strictly, stringently attached to the idea of predestination election, the idea that some people are not given the opportunity to know God, that is widely held and is one of the most basic understanding of the Presbyterian church. Now, we're not Presbyterian. We're non-denominational. 
But we share some similarities to lots of different denominations. But this is one that I don't share. <laughs> so I'm up front and not a believer in predestination election as it is heralded by others. However, I want you to understand the argument, and then I'm going to try to share why I feel the way I do, but you can feel exactly the way you want to feel. He began teaching that only people chosen by God can and will seek God. Now, we have some places in Scripture that uh, he bases it from and that seem to say that or seem to direct us to the place of saying it is possible that, that like if God wants Mark to be saved, Mark will be saved no matter whether Mark wants to or not. Um, and if, if God hasn't chosen Mark to be saved, there's no amount of teaching, preaching, repentance, um, anything that I will ever truly actually be saved because it's actually impossible to be saved. In John 15, 16, Jesus says this, which seems to support what John Calvin says. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Here we have from the words of Jesus the mindset that I have come and chosen you. You had no part in this. We see a deeper, more fundamental teaching in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 through 10, and says this, Even as he, God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In other words, God seems to be, what Scripture seems to be saying is God chose who are going to be his followers since even before he created the heavens and the earth. That we should be holy and blameless before him in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through jesus christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to him things in heaven and things on earth those overlapping heaven and earth that's what his goal is, to bring unity back here, which we all know now is the new heaven and new earth or the new Jerusalem that will descend from the heavens as God recreates this thing without sin involved. Some of the things we pull out of Ephesians 1, this is Paul talking, and we probably are going to do a deeper dive into Ephesians after the first of the year. We might do another... Um, interactive series through Ephesians after the first of the year. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Some of the questions we, we begin to ask in these uh, verses like this is, what does that mean? What does he mean he chose us before the foundation of the world? And does he mean he chose us like it's going to be us? Or does he mean he chose whoever it is going to be that they would be holy and blameless? Which is it? Is he saying I ch he chose Mark? Or is he saying that, well, whoever it ends up being, then they are going to be holy and blameless? That's one question that we have here, and we're not exactly sure what that means. 
The second is this, whoever this group of people are that seems to have been predestined seem to have this really wonderful talent in that they ask God for anything and they get it. To which causes me to question whether I'm actually saved at times, right? Because I don't always get what I pray for. I don't know about you. I don't always get what I pray for. But what he says here is, <laughs> making known the mystery of his will. Wait, 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 wait. Nope, that's not it. Oh, I've lost it. Oh, I've lost it. All right. So we'll come back to that. We'll come back to that. And its most basic understanding, predestination, predestination is the belief that God determined all of this before anything happened. And the most, hang on, hang on. I'll, be, I'll catch you in a minute. And the most basic understanding of election is that God has chosen some to be saved and chosen others not to be saved. That is the most basic understanding of predestination and election. What's your question? Okay. Hang on to your question. We'll come back. Okay? It's a good question. Hang on to your question. Now, those of you who study this, study Calvinism, as it's been called, um, have heard of something called TULIP, and I want to share with you what the basic understanding is of um, predestination and election based on John Calvin's teachings that have developed over time. And TULIP is the anacronym that um, describes the five fundamental beliefs of what Calvinism is. T stands for total depravity. Total depravity means that we are so full of sin, there is nothing in us that has any remote ability to want to seek God, to want to seek repentance, and there is, we are just sick. There, there are none that are good. No one is good. No one seeks for God on their own, which Scripture says is absolutely true. So there is a depravity among us. But this total depravity means you can't have a moment in which you cry out to God, that you see a, the beauty of Christ, or that you recognize the, the, the depths of your sin. Instead, um, you, total depravity means none of us, no one ever will do that unless God touches you and makes you be able to do that. That's what total depravity means. The second principle, unconditional election, is that God has elected some to be saved, and it is unconditional. Those whom he has chosen will be saved. Those whom have not been chosen will not be saved. It is unconditional. He chose there are some that will and some that won't, and that's just the way it is, and there's no mixing that up whatsoever unconditional election. The third L is for limited atonement, and that just follows along with the same mindset that says the only people that can be atoned for are the ones that God has elected. This is not unlimited atonement in which anyone can find God and be saved. Instead, only the people God has chosen, so it's limited atonement. I and Tulip's um, stands for irresistible grace. And again, if God's chosen you, you can't say no. Like, it's irresistible. This grace that you're going to receive, there is no saying no about this. It is just, you're, you got it. Congratulations. Like it. No other choice. 
And P stands for perseverance of the saints, which goes along with all of uh, unconditional election and irresistible grace that says, once you are saved, you will never lose your salvation because God determined you would be saved and God gets what he wants. You will be saved. Okay. That was the most basic understanding of Calvinism. And I have just probably, if you, so if you love Calvinism, you're probably angry how much I just brushstroked that. And that's all right. My point is not to give you a deep, overwhelming understanding of this, but just to give you the big picture, and you can go study if you want. But we do seem to find these principles in Scripture. God has chosen. God has predestined. predestined. God has chosen before the foundation of the earth. It does seem that God has done this. Now, this gives us some opportunities, but it also creates some problems for us. This, this mindset of, of God has decided, um, I am going to, yes, for these people, the, uh, you're going to be in, and you people, you're going to hell. So that's just that's what I've decided, and that's what I want to do. It does create some opportunities. It does solve some problems for us. One of the things that it solves for some of us is that if you are an adherent to Calvinism, then you are, you, all the pressure for, for evangelism is off. Like you have no pressure for evangelism. Like a person is going to get saved if they've been determined that they're going to get saved. And there's no amount of reaching out, loving, caring for, teaching, helping that will ever uh, lead a person to get saved. So you basically go out and you can say with the most um, non-dramatic, uncaring, uninspired, you know, lack of passion and a presentation to say, you know what, you're a sinner and Jesus died for you, and if you want to know him, you can. Okay, see ya. And they will. Which takes pressure off from someone who's like, I really care about this person, and I know they don't know Christ, and I really want them to. I really don't want to screw that up. You don't have to worry about that. Because if they're going to be saved, they're going to be saved, and if they're not, there's nothing you can do to encourage them to, and there's nothing you can do to mess it up. I mean, God is the author of all of that. I think another opportunity that this gives us is it does help to understand why there are so many people in the church that act so badly. So the church leading up to around 320 AD was a persecuted group of people that followed Jesus because he was the love of their lives. But around 320, Constantine decided he was going to make this the state religion. And now, in addition to getting Jesus, you also got political power, wealth, lots of socially impressive friends. And now, all of a sudden, Christianity gave you something you may want more than Jesus. And since then, we've been struggling with this problem. Because Jesus never promised us social clout, political power. He never promised us that we were going to be on the top of the social totem pole. He never said that. In fact, he said it's going to be the actual, the opposite. Like you're going to suffer and you're going to have struggle and, and, and you're going to give to those in need rather than stocking up everything for yourself. And you're going to be someone who doesn't have power because you're not seeking to live in the earth as if the earth is the greatest thing in the world. You're seeking to live in the kingdom of heaven because you know that is the greatest thing ever. And so that has that built from that time of Constantine on leading up to where the Reformation came in and the sense of church leaders now had great political clout and power in the world 
running Rome, running England. It's one of the reasons our nation exists today, because they got tired of the Pope dictating political affairs to people in England. And they said, we want to go to a place where we can have separation of church and state. We're tired of our government being the church. And we've struggled with that problem ever since. Anytime we think that we get something from being a Christian outside of Jesus, we get messed up. And so we have people acting very badly that go to church every week. And we will say, our, our more mercy-oriented people will say, but we, got, we need to love them and they're struggling and they're just we just need to... Yeah, but, but there are some ways of acting bad that like you cannot be on your knees before Christ and continue to act this way. And I think one of the reasons that is is because even in our nation, there was a cultural expectation towards Christianity that people are bemoaning today. That's why it's even a part of election um, jargon. People are still bemoaning today that our nation is no longer this just one big happy Christian church. Because there have been times even in our own nation in which you got something for being a Christian outside of Jesus. And if you get something for being a Christian outside of Jesus, then the likelihood that you really wanted Jesus to begin with may be really slim. But it would explain why we have this problem in the church if people have not been elected by God to be saved, but instead are culturally interested in the benefits of being a part of, a, of the church and they don't actually know Jesus, don't actually have the Holy Spirit, and don't actually even know what it means to know Jesus because God's determined they can't. Now, that's an opportunity, not like that's a good thing. It's an opportunity for us to understand why sometimes people never grow in their faith. Why people will do all kinds of illegal things while telling all their friends that Jesus is the most important thing in their life to them. So it does give us some opportunities, but it does also give us some problems. And I just want to open you up to a world that maybe only pastors know about. Um, just to, um, well, before we do that, I'll, I'll open that up. You're, now you're really curious. But I'll, let's go back to Tulip. No, let's not go back to Tulip. Let me open you up to some opportunities in the world that you don't know about. It's the... It's the world of theological memes. They're wonderful. So, some of, let's go to the next slide. So this is one of the problems with the idea of predestination and election in meme form. How dare you do what I already predetermined you would do? That would be one of the pushbacks towards predestination. How can he judge us for stuff that he doesn't ever give us the opportunity to not do? One pushback. Let's go to the next one. Good master, what shall I do that I may in inherit eternal life? Nothing, dude. I've predestined you to hell. Another problem when we come to talk about the love of Jesus and he desires that all could be saved. Um, so those are a couple of problems. And there are um, other problems. If God has predestined some for hell... I have no choice other than that, then how, how do we understand that through the context of God's love for all people? Does he love all people? It doesn't feel loving. 
So that's a problem that we will have to address if we dive in and fully embrace the idea that God has chosen who will and who will not. Another problem we have is that Jesus never actually addresses this. Now, he did say what I read earlier to his disciples, you didn't choose me, I chose you. He did say that. But it's very unclear exactly what he was saying here. Does he mean like to get off our boat and come with you? Yes, you you came and got us. Like we didn't seek you out, you came and got us. Or do you mean like to actually even be able to know you and know God? It's very unclear. Jesus himself doesn't actually speak on this. Paul speaks on it a lot. Peter speaks on it. In fact, Paul and Peter are really the two people that speak in this direction that gives this credence. But why wasn't Jesus more clear about this if this is true? Another problem is, is there anything about the culture and context of the time in which Paul and Peter were talking that we don't fully understand today, that we may misunderstand their words because we're interpreting through our culture and our context, not through their culture and their context? In other words, when we try to tell our kids how great it was um, when we were kids and we got to watch Hee Haw, they may not fully understand the beauty of Hee Haw coming on Saturday nights because there really wasn't anything else on, right? So their culture and context has a, a bearing on this that maybe we're trying to understand it in the... If you're trying to understand Hee Haw in the world of Netflix, Hee Haw should never have existed. Right? It should never have existed. Some of you say it doesn't matter. It shouldn't have existed then either. But uh, culture and context matters. <clears throat> Is it possible we've, excuse me, interpreted these verses wrongly? <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> Another guy comes on the scene. We're talking about John Calvin. His name is Jacob Arminius. And he was born 50 years after John Calvin, and he was born and lived in the Netherlands, was a Dutch um, theologian. And he would go on to inspire John Wesley, who would then create the Methodist denomination, who are are, um, starch opponents to the idea of Calvinism. And Arminius refuted Calvin's teaching and instead believed that God has chosen everyone that would choose him because his love is for all. Let me say that again. God has chosen everyone that would choose him because his love is for all. We read uh, Peter saying this in 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So which is it? Everything boils down in this kind of theological understanding of who can be saved to these two things, who are the elect and what is predestination. And I'm already out of time, um, and I still have half my notes. So I'm going to just, I'm going to jump through, I'm going to jump through some hoops here, but I want you to get the big, some bigger points. Uh, When it comes to the elect... And I shared with you in our conversation with some of our African-American friends that came to teach, and we talked about uh, uh, racism and race and things like that, that there was this really interesting dynamic between um, kind of uh, of white folk like me and many African-Americans, though not all, 
is the difference between individualism and collectivism. The, in, the difference between I'm worried about me and my life, I'm focused on what I'm thinking about and what's happening for me, and the idea that this is a group exercise. Like we're all in this together. We are all a community. When it happens to one, it happens to all. And, and it really is, I, I really do believe that's true, at least for me, that I don't think about white people in the sense of my people, right? Um, I just think we're like a bunch of different people. And I think that's one of the reasons that we do struggle with the idea of, of race, that conversation, because we think, well, you should also think about just yourself and and not think about the collective group. You should just think about yourself. That's what should happen. And, and you know, Barack Obama is a great example of why racism doesn't exist anymore because here's an individual that became president of the United States, can't be a racist nation uh, if he's president of the United States. In, in which my black friends would say something to the effect of, well, but what about the whole, what about everybody else? Now, I don't think this is just a racial issue. I don't think this is just a white person issue. I, I think this is just a postmodern culture issue where we typically are very staunch individualists rather than seeing that I'm responsible to a community, a community is responsible to me. When it hurts the community, it hurts me. When it hurts me, it hurts the community. When it benefits the community, it benefits me. When it benefits me, it benefits the community. And we see a beautiful picture in Acts 2 where the church says, we're going to take everything we have and give everyone an equal playing field about how they live their life. So they took everything they had, they sold it, and then they gave it to everyone as they had need. And, and then we have this interesting uh, couple that chose to sell their stuff and give a little bit to the church and, and keep the rest for themselves. And they ended up like dying because of it, which, which is a great illustration before you take an offering, by the way. But they ended up dying. But the, the whole sense was community. And so when we talk about the elect, I think one of the problems we have when we start talking about election as in God has chosen, we cannot say God has not chosen before the foundation of time because scripture says God has chosen since before the foundation of time. So we can't just outright ignore election like it doesn't happen. But do we really understand what the elect or who the elect are? I think there's a lot of question. In the Old Testament, the word for elect is behir, and in Hebrew, it usually, almost every time it's used, is in the plural form, not in the singular form. So the elect is not speaking of an individual, but is speaking of a people. And in the Old Testament, can you guess which people the elect are talking about? Somebody throw it out. Israel. The, the elect always talks about Israel because in the Old Testament, they are the chosen people. And what are they chosen for? Are they chosen to be the only people that would ever be able to know God? Well, we know the rest of the story. No, they are chosen to demonstrate God's presence, God's power, God's care and concern to the rest of the world. And they are chosen for the Messiah to come out of their midst that would then save the rest of the world. So the elect in the Old Testament is talking about Israel, a people. We'll come back to that in just a second. In the New Testament, the, the Greek word is eklektos, and it can be used as a verb or as an adjective, and it can be singular or plural, and is used in all those contexts throughout the New Testament, talking about individuals and talking about 
peoples. Now Paul, while he is one of the primary people who gives us this whole quandary to begin with, talking about predestination and election, says this in Romans 11. He says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? He's talking about post-resurrection, nation of Israel who were the chosen, no longer the chosen. Some say still the chosen, but they're no longer the only people God's interacting with now because now the Gentiles are in on this too. Has God rejected his people? Has he rejected Israel? Has he rejected the elect? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, the elect. These are the elect. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Another pointing back to predestination election language, foreknowledge which literally means to know beforehand, by the way. But when we see places in Scripture talking about knowing, it's usually talking about deep relational connection, not just I know about. We actually are deeply connected in relationship. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Keep that in the back of your minds. So God's not rejecting anybody that, of the elect that have, were foreknown, But in a minute, he's going to say, but some of them don't know God and aren't going to. Do you not know that the scripture says of Elijah how he appeals to God instead of Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does God reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal, which means those who have chosen not to reject God and to serve Baal are still those who are knowing God. But what is God's reply to? Oh, 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 nope. So, to at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Again, what does that mean? There's a remnant of the elect. So even all of those that fall into the category of the elect aren't actually going to know God, only a remnant of the elect. Stay with me, I'm almost done for today. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. That's our understanding of grace and salvation. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. He's talking about people that were previously discussed as the elect in the Old Testament. He's now saying these people whose hearts are hardened were the elect of the Old Testament. Verse 8, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall by no means, rather through their trespass salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous? Now, an Armenian who rejects predestination and election and a Calvinist who believes that God has chosen who will be saved will both read this passage differently. This is a problem. The Calvinist will say, see, this is what it says. God chose who these people are. He chose the remnant. The problem for me is 
But he also says that some that were elect didn't actually know him, only a remnant of the elect were the actual elect. Even though the elect in the Old Testament referred to people that would never truly know God. Are you getting are you getting frustrated yet? A little bit? What this says to me is that maybe we don't fully comprehend exactly what God is saying through Paul. On predestination, this is my go-to place on predestination, which is also one of the foundational passages of Paul speaking on predestination. It comes from Romans 8.28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose... For those whom he foreknew, there's that word again, he also predestined. But what did he predestine them for? He predestined them to be conformed to the image of his son, which is very reminiscent of what we read earlier today um, that says, oh, I can't find it. It's very reminiscent of the fact that what are we actually elected to do? What are we actually predestined for? Did God foreknow those who would choose, or did God foreknow who he would allow to choose? Is our most basic foundational question. But what Paul is saying in Romans 8.28 is what what he foreknew was that he was predestining us to be conformed to the image of his Son. Which means... Anyone who's going to be a true believer in Christ is going to do this. They're going to be conformed to the image of his son, which speaks to a problem within the church. We have people that never grow, never want to grow, never deepen in any knowledge of Scripture, never spend any time in prayer, never are generous to anyone around them, and, and, and do terrible things, and yet then talk about how much they love Jesus on Facebook. It's a problem. What he's saying is, for those whom he foreknew, they're going to become more like Jesus. We talked about this in the last few weeks, about that becoming new, being made new. Like, you're, you're not, when you become a Christian, you're not necessarily there, but you're going to get better and better and better. And then that leads me to another question, and that is, what about repentance? No matter whether you're a Calvinist or an Armenian, Repentance is still necessary. No one can turn on their own. There has to be a moment of repentance. In Matthew 4.17, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Acts 3.19, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. 1 John 1.9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, there's still the need to repent. The, The issue around predestination election, who gets the opportunity to know God, um, there are some things that are the same for both. Repentance is necessary. Jesus is necessary. Death, burial, and resurrection is necessary. All these things are necessary. The question is, well, who is it offered to? Who actually has a shot at this happening? And when we mix Christianity with culture or with politics or with power or wealth or anything that we want, just being broken earthly people apart from Christ, when we start mixing them together and we mishmash this faith into all these other things that Jesus says, those, you cannot serve those things and me. 
we mix them and mash them together, it makes a very confusing faith, which is where I think the church is today. We're confused about what we really are getting for our time and investment. So how do we decide? This is what I'm ending with. So those of you who are wondering, when is Mark going to stop? Because you're either deeply involved in what I'm talking about right now or you checked out a long time ago. So how do we decide how to move forward here? I'll tell you kind of what I've done. I've come to the place of maybe we don't decide. <laughs> maybe we don't put our stake in the ground and say, this is it. And we don't do that. Maybe we say, you know what? If God wants to choose who has the opportunity or not, God gets to choose because God is God. In fact, that's a, a really a, a preeminent understanding in Calvinism is that their view of God's sovereignty and worthiness is higher than others because they'll even let him choose who goes to hell. Maybe we do let God be God. And if he wants to do that, the parable of the two lumps of clay that's talking about the Gentiles and the Jews, what is it if I choose to create people for, as vessels of wrath or as vessels of mercy? What if I do choose that? Jesus posits the question. He's God. He does get to do that. Is it fair? Well, he's God. His definition of fair is what matters, not mine. He does get to do that. There are too many places in Scripture for me to dive into this theology and embrace it myself. And some people would say I'm absolutely right, and some people would say I've completely misread all these verses. John 3.16 for God so loved the world, plural, that he gave his only son, that whoever, plural, believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world, a people, to condemn the world, but in order that the world, a people, might be saved through him. So is it possible that God has foreknown and chosen a people to love and to die for? And yet some of those people will not experience that love and not experience him. John 6:44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day is very nonspecific on who this is that he's drawing. But God does have to draw people. In fact, in John 16, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage. Jesus is talking about this. He's got to die and he's got to go away. Something better's coming. It's to your advantage that I go away. If I don't go away, the helper will not come to you, which is the Holy Spirit. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world. Plural. A people, humanity. He will convict humanity 
concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they don't believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the rule of the world is judged. So the Holy Spirit is necessary, God's presence in us, even to convict us and to draw us to even want to know Christ. The question is, is, is there anyone he's not drawing? Now, if you are fundamentally believe that your view of sovereignty requires you to say, God chose some to go to heaven and God chose some to go to hell. It does solve some problems that we have with theology. But it also creates some problems. Creates things like leave the 99 to go after the one. Creates problems like the parable of the seeds in which the seeds fell some in good soil and they sprouted and they grew. Some fell in rocky soil along the path and uh, they, they were trampled and they never sprouted. And then some among the thorns and the thistles in which they seemed to grow, which seems to indicate they had some relationship with God, but then the cares of the world choked it out, just like the weeds choke out a new plant. And so then those people that seemed to reach out to God, all of a sudden re- push him back again, which doesn't seem like God was electing them to do that, but Jesus said that is what some people are going to do in response to Jesus in the gospel. They're going to reach out and even get the seed and it's going to implant and grow, but then they're going to reject it again. But unconditional election says you can't reject it. And irresistible grace says you can't reject it. And yet Jesus seems to say some people will receive and then reject. Now a Calvinist, Calvinistic scholar would come up here and tell me I've completely misinterpreted all of that. And I'm fine with that. Because some things still don't change. God does the drawing. We have a great need. We still love each other. We still demonstrate the worth and value of God in our world. We still hope for the heavens that are going to come and they're going to overlay the earth fully and completely one day when Jesus returns and the new Jerusalem comes from heaven. And whatever that's all going to look like, we are back to some kind of a semblance of what happened in the Garden of Eden when we walked and knew God fully. Have I answered all your questions? I ask questions. I answer questions you've never even had, still don't have. But maybe it will help you to pique your interest and dive deeper and try to understand that Scripture actually gives us a lot of things that are hard to understand, and we can spend a lifetime trying to understand them. And that is a good thing. Father, I thank you that I can confidently and boldly say I don't understand everything that you've said in your word. And I thank you that even not being able to understand everything in your word, you are still drawing us to you. And I pray that everyone that hears the words of, of your gospel, will not only be drawn, but will respond, and will respond in through repentance. I pray that we would seek to approach you just as the, whole, the, the priests did in the Old Testament, in, in a sense of purity, that you are our greatest treasure. And by knowing you, we have found the greatest thing that can be found. I pray that when your word becomes confusing and 
and, and just not sure how, what we're supposed to do or what we're supposed to, how we're supposed to live by these confusing words, I pray that your spirit would make them clear. You said that's what your spirit would do. Just teach us all things. Help us to understand your word. But I pray that we would be a people that demonstrates to this place you are the greatest thing that could ever have been experienced. To know you is greater than to know anything else in this earth. Let us experience that and show that by the way we live. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.